and welcome back to the True Travel Podcast with me, Laura Sanders. I hope you're managing to keep warm if you're listening from the depths of the Arctic blast in the UK this week. If that is you, then today's episode will certainly help you to visualise hotter climes as we travel to Saudi Arabia in the show's first ever Travel Guides special episode, which will focus on a destination rather than a guest. Whether you're just hearing about Saudi Arabia for the first time as the Qatar World Cup shines a light on the region, or it's been on your radar for a while, today's episode will provide you with some inspiration. Taking us there is award-winning travel journalist Tariq Hussein, who you'll recognise if you've listened to Season 4, Episode 4. As Tariq will tell you himself in a minute, he's explored this country extensively and even lived there for a while. So he's well placed to advise on where to go, things to do and see and local cuisine you should try at least once. He also tells us how the country's changed since he's lived there and how they're rapidly gearing up to invite more tourists in. Before that though, I'd like to remind you to hit subscribe if you haven't done so already and I'd love to hear what you thought of the show's first Travel Guides special so please do leave behind your thoughts in a review. And to see more from the podcast and its guests, you can search the True Travel Podcast on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Now over to Tarek. I've been all over Saudi Arabia. I used to actually live there many, many moons ago. I lived in Jeddah, which is the port town along the Hijaz region and is often referred to as the gateway to the Hajj because it was traditionally where people arrived before they went on to perform the Hajj in Mecca. I've probably written most of the recent literature on Saudi Arabia because there are very few people that could get into Saudi Arabia until very, very recently. And when I worked on the most recent Lonely Planet Guide to Saudi Arabia, it was actually just before they announced the tourist visa. So I spent around two and a half to three months traveling the length and breadth of the kingdom at a time when they weren't actually open to the world. So, you know, I thought I was doing something fantastically novel and unique. And I thought, my God, you know, I'm going to be one of the only people on the planet to travel across the entire kingdom. And I came back and within months they said, hey, anyone else want to pop along and join in? And so everybody was allowed in suddenly. But of course it meant the guide I wrote on Saudi Arabia was literally the only comprehensive guide that was out there, even though it's only a small section of the Oman, UAE and Arabian Peninsula guidebook that Lonely Planet have done. They'll probably need to revisit it now that it's a popular destination. At the time, they only attributed a small amount because absolutely nobody could get in as a tourist. You can only go in on business visas or for the Hajj or something. So, yeah, I often get asked to write about Saudi Arabia purely because um, I've spent so much time there. I also wrote something called The Hajj Diaries for Lonely Planet, which ended up in a book recently and got picked as one of the best pieces of travel writing of the 21st century, which was quite lovely. Amazing. So we can safely say you know Saudi Arabia very well. (laughs) How do you think it's changed over the years then? So obviously you lived there and then when you were going to write the book, not many people could get in. And now it seems to be an up and coming or even already a popular tourism destination. Oh, absolutely. I, I 
you know, without a shadow of a doubt, I think in years to come, when I tell people about the Saudi Arabia I lived in, they will find it impossible to believe that that was the way it was in the kingdom. Even now, most recently, when I was there on assignment for Condé Nast, and I had a photographer with me who has been all over the world for Condé Nast, but has never been into Saudi Arabia. When I was telling him some of the peculiarities, shall we say, that Saudi Arabia used to enforce, the social norms where men and women couldn't hang out in public unless they were family or married. When we were walking up to a restaurant, I said to the photographer, you know, our host, who also happened to be a Laura, I said, you know, maybe a couple of years ago or when I lived here, Tom, that was the name of the photographer, I said, she would have had to go in through another entrance because there would have been a female and family entrance and there would have been a male, single male entrance. That doesn't mean you have to be single. It's just when, you, when you're coming to the restaurant, if you're not with your family, that's the entrance you went in. Um, queuing up for food, there was a female <laughs> line and a male line. You know, if me and you travel there together, Laura, you know, as an unmarried couple, we wouldn't have been able to have um, shacked up in a room in a hotel. It would have been illegal. You know, these things. Um, you, wouldn't have been, you wouldn't have been able to drive. You know, all of these things, which were the norm when I lived there all the way back in, in the mid noughties, it's going to seem absolutely ludicrous to anybody who goes there in, in, in the coming years because the effort by the Saudi government to kind of do away with all that has been nothing short of a revolution. And I have to confess, you know, when I was traveling around there just before all of these changes were made, I did not imagine it would be so swift because these were norms that had been so firmly embedded into society. I just didn't see how you could just overnight tell people to switch into a different way of functioning. But it seems... One, it's been driven, obviously, by the government um, and, and, and in particular, Mohammed bin Salman. But clearly the youth have embraced it. And Saudi Arabia has a massive young population. So these guys are really kind of like, yeah, this is how we want to live. We, we don't want to live like you guys did. We want to live this way. And because they make up the majority, I think that's played a big part in how these changes are being embedded in, within the social strata. That is not to say that you're not going to find people who are still uncomfortable with this, people who are still going to, you know, conform in their own little bubbles to those norms to an extent, you know, women still wear niqab all over the place. And I, I suspect will continue to do for many, many years to come. That's These, these things aren't going to change overnight. You're just going to see a much more, um, you know, emerging of the of the kind of different norms that are going to start to manifest. But also from a physical change perspective, you've got a country that is investing not millions, not billions, but trillions into projects, mega projects. They're called gigas, you know, mega, mega projects that are completely changing landscapes. You know, I, I feel very privileged. I'm one of the last people to have driven up the entire coastline of the Red Sea when it was virginial, if you like, you know, untouched. And next time I go there, I know because I'd seen the cranes coming in when I was there already, the entire landscape of that coastline is going to be changed. There's going to be all these, you know, luxury islands off the coast. There's going to be luxury spas on the coast. Then you've got these new cities being built, um, mega cities like Neom, where the rules are going to be very different. Neom isn't entirely a Saudi city either. It also falls into other countries. You've got stuff going on in Riyadh where they're building an entire mini city next to the existing city which is going to be inspired by the ancient Saud family's oasis home Turaif which is going to you know inspire this kind of 
for want of a better phrase, a much more Saudi kind of architecture and style and, and a much more historic looking space that is geared towards tourism. And then where I went most recently to write this piece, which is a place that was historically known to most people as Madian Saleh, but is now known as Hedra or Hegra, depending on how you pronounce it. And this is basically the second Nabataean city that we have intact in the world after Petra. So um, you have this stunning series of Nabataean ruins that historically was closed off to the world, you know, because um, Saudi Arabia, for, for various reasons, wasn't really keen for people to visit it. There was also associations with some kind of classical Arabic texts and Islamic texts that suggested it wasn't a good place to visit. So all of these these kind of um, restrictions or, or, you know, straight jackets that might have been placed on certain spaces are being removed in a way that, you know, I hadn't expected to happen so rapidly. It sounds to me like what's happening there is like what happened to Dubai or some of the other UAE cities. It looks like it's it's very much gearing up for tourism and it's developing rapidly, as you say. Um, so for those travelling there now, what could they go and see? What are some of the highlights? A lot of the projects that I've spoken about are kind of, you know, in their infancy. Um, some aren't even built, you know, like the big project in Riyadh is just a big hole at the moment, although the, the historic oasis can be visited. Um, however, the Nabataean city that I've mentioned, Hedra, is very much open to tourism. So people can fly into Al-Ula, which is a region and also... At, a town of the same name where people can stay, hotels and luxury accommodations have been built. So this is one of the places that has been really, really kind of pushed because it's more or less ready. And they can go and have these wonderful desert experiences. You've got health and wellness centers being set up in these stunning otherworldly deserts, which really do look like something, you know, from what we imagine places like Mars to be. Anybody who's been to Jordan's um, Wadi Rum, there you go. Very, very popular place. Well, it's that desert continued into Saudi Arabia. So it's got that kind of wonderful sandstone structures everywhere that have been shaped by millennia of weather and wind and rain. Um, and, you know, it's just on a much bigger scale. And obviously with the money that the Saudis have, they're putting in the kind of infrastructure other countries can only dream of putting in because they've got the wealth. And then Moving away from what's happening from a modern perspective, as somebody who's an absolute history buff, you know, my favourite city remains Jeddah because, one, I used to live there, and two, as I said to you right at the beginning, it's the historic port town. It has a millennia of history. It has a beautiful UNESCO World Heritage Town Centre where these stunning old houses, these grand old houses that were built using the coral from the Red Sea... And then they have these beautiful, what we call mashrabiyas, these, um, you know, latticed kind of balcony type structures attached to them. Um, it's it's unique, probably in the world. Um, and certainly it's one of the gems of Saudi Arabia. The entire old town has that wonderful historic feel about it. It's got one of the largest Arabian bazaars. It's very cosmopolitan, very multicultural and has a delightful coastline as well. And that's before we get to all the kind of pilgrim history that comes with it. And then a place that's actually often overlooked is the Deep South, which is 
very different to the Saudi of popular imagination because we have mountains of greenery, we have actual forests, these mountain villages with stunning architecture, very different from the rest of Saudi Arabia, much closer to the um, nearby Yemeni culture because it's closer to the Yemen border. And, you know, it's a much cooler climate. And then again, you've got this wonderful coastline where you can go and do amazing deep sea diving, um, snorkeling and what have you. There is so much, but I would suggest people do take the time to research what is accessible and what isn't, because that's one of the problems I have every time I go to Saudi Arabia is that not everything's ready, but yet it's been spoken about as though it might be ready. And so you turn up and then you're like, oh, okay, so I was expecting something to already be here, but it's not. So make sure things are in place and then go and see it because it's certainly an exciting place to visit. And it's a place that is going through a nothing short of a revolution and it will never be the same again. Um, and so if people turn up now, they're going to probably see a culture and a society that's going to you know, disappear very quickly or, or at least change quite dramatically. Amazing. Sounds really exciting. And I had no idea that there was a cooler climate in Saudi Arabia. You just assume it's all desert, don't you? So that's really interesting to know. Um, tell me a little bit about the food and the drink and any specialities that people could uh, try there. So the food and drink is um, in the big cities and the cosmopolitan places like Jeddah and Riyadh you get an array of cuisines from across the globe. So it wouldn't be that different to turning up in Dubai, where you can pretty much eat anything from anywhere in the world, or, or, or at least a, an imitation of it. Um, and so, you know, when you go to those places, there is no restriction to what you want to eat. And also there's this emerging, really kind of fascinating, localised effort to try and really um, take traditional Saudi cuisine and make it much more fine dining in that. So you've got all of that stuff going on. But the kind of traditional dishes that I really loved when I was living there, one of the most famous is known as kapsa, which is a variation of biryani, shall we say. The very Saudi version is that it's often eaten in a communal way where you get this huge mound of rice with an entire lamb often flung on top of it, which has been roasted. The meat melts in your mouth. It's um, very aromatic, but it's it's eaten with these kind of lovely tomato-y kind of um, condiments and these um, spicy chili condiments as well. So that's one of the popular dishes in the country. Then one of my favourite, which is more of a kind of... Um, traditional dish that some say comes out of Yemen is full, which is eaten with these huge, gigantic pieces of bread that you break up and dip into the full. And full is a type of bean paste almost. So it's like a heated up hummus is probably the best way to describe it. Uh, but then on top of it, you throw on various spices, you know, chopped onions and what have you. And it becomes quite a substantial meal in its own right. But one of the things I really loved about living in somewhere like Jeddah was that because you have such a huge migrant community as well you can also go and taste wonderful Indian food you can go and taste amazing Indonesian food because there's large Indonesian communities there's you know Malaysian food there um, you, you, you really do have a great choice in the bigger cities it's when you go out to the smaller kind of more um, regional spaces then you are going to have to attempt some of the local cuisine which might not seem as familiar to you at first but hey it's all part of the adventure 
Absolutely. My mouth is watering just listening to this. It sounds great. Finally, then, what are your top three tips for somebody who's never been to Saudi Arabia before and they're considering going? I think the first thing would be is to prepare for the heat because, you know, Saudi Arabia is a desert, essentially, apart from that deep south that I mentioned. The second thing is get yourself a good pair of walking shoes because a a lot of the stuff that you need to go and see out in Saudi Arabia, you know, you do have to cover some ground because it is a big, big place. And even when you're wandering around the town centres of places like Jeddah and that, you know, it it will take its toll on your feet. And the other thing is, I would say, get one of those, um, you know, those rucksacks that have like a, a bladder in it with water. So you're constantly hydrated because I think one of the scariest things about being out in those countries is, you know, we completely underestimate how dangerous the sun can be. So, you know, you've got to make sure one, your head is always covered. um, And instead of instead of wearing like a hat, which just builds up loads of sweat, the best thing is to do what the locals have done for millennia, which is wear a loose kind of scarf over your head so that air can flow through it and what have you. You've got to keep that desert sun off your head. It's really, really important. Otherwise, you know, you can you can do yourself some serious harm. Keep the sun off your head and make sure you're constantly hydrated. So in short, if you're going to Saudi Arabia, be prepared to be hot. Absolutely. Yes. Without (laughs) a shadow of a doubt. Amazing. Oh, Tariq, Saudi Arabia has made it onto my bucket list. It sounds amazing and it sounds like there's lots of exciting things to come from it as well. So thank you for joining me on this destination special. Not at all. And thank you for having me on.